The month of March brings with it the promise of spring, the promise of more vaccine supply, and the anniversary of the start of the COVID-19 pandemic in the Capital Region. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. The Armory, which usually this year is better known as the home of Albany Patroons basketball, is now set up uh, to deliver as many as 7,000 shots a week. We'll dissect New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's recent cascade of troubles. I never touched anyone inappropriately. And we'll share a snippet of Christy Gustafson Barletti's new series, 20 Things Plus. You gotta go right to Betty, right? Okay, okay, so I had dinner one night with Betty White. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. A look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. All right, let's start with a look at what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. We are here once again with Times Union editor Casey Seiler to go over the top headlines of the week. Let's start with uh, the fact that we are coming up on the one year anniversary of the pandemic in many ways for us here in the capital region. Uh, you could probably pinpoint that anniversary at different times for different regions, but but here in the capital region, it all kind of came to a head right at the beginning of March, middle of March, and we are marking that with a special section. So can you tell us what we can look forward to in that? Yeah, we, we kicked around the idea of calling it COVID year one, but we decided that would be kind of depressing because it presupposes that there might be a COVID year two. So now it is basically just a, a look back at the year and how it has changed virtually everything we do, including the fact that, Jess, you and I are having this conversation virtually. Um, you know, Bethany Bump, our health reporter, who was so ably and energetically covered um, the, the healthcare implications, broad as they are, of the crisis, uh, looks kind of looks at the widescreen picture and the lessons that the capital region, as well as the state, as well as the country and the rest of the world has learned that will hopefully prepare us for similar health threats that might be coming down the pike. Nobody, of course, suggests that uh, this is going to be the last type of virus that, that the world faces. We face them all the time. This one, however, has been so singular. We also have uh, you know, conversations with uh, people from across the region about how their lives changed over the course of, of the pandemic. And Steve Barnes sat down with Albany County's Health Commissioner Elizabeth Whalen, who has been, you know, a, a familiar face um, because of the the briefings that she has done alongside the the county executive. So, uh, in addition to stories about how, of course, the business world has changed, what it's meant just kind of psychologically for people due to to social distancing, a very good section put together by by Gary Hahn, our, our Emmy for features in sports. I encourage people to check it out. I'm looking forward to reading the stories in this section, and we will have more. 
next week on next week's podcast about some of the stories that were in that section. But still on the topic of COVID, a mass vaccination site is now open in Albany and accepting appointments. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, the Washington Avenue Armory uh, has been set up by FEMA as uh, one of the sites that have been established across the state in the hopes of fighting the inequitable or uneven way that the vaccination is getting done, especially in communities of color. The Armory, which usually this year is better known as the home of Albany Patroons basketball, is now set up uh, to deliver as many as 7,000 shots a week. And initial registration was open to people in certain urban zip codes across the region, including many of the neighborhoods that are seen as being kind of pharmaceutical or healthcare deserts. Um, you know, we reported recently that a, a downtown Albany Walgreens had shut down, which is, you know, one of the many retail businesses uh, offering healthcare products and services that are disappearing from certain neighborhoods. And they tend to be neighborhoods that are more economically challenged, neighborhoods that feature a, a higher percentage of uh, minoritized uh, individuals. It's a real problem. And this is the state and the federal government's attempt to, to knock it down. Let's switch over to a topic that is dominating our Capitol Bureau. Uh, all of the things, I guess I'll just say things, surrounding Governor Andrew Cuomo. Uh, he came out with an apology yesterday uh, to the, the people who came forward and, and accused him of sexual harassment. Uh, we'll have a lot more on this later in the podcast and on our sister podcast, Capital Confidential. But can you just set the stage for us? What happened this week? Well, the governor is facing the most significant crisis of his time in office. I, I think it's fair to say this is the most serious crisis he has ever faced in his life in, in politics. And it is the result of a series of dominoes falling um, over the course of the last uh, slightly more than a month beginning with the release of the attorney general's report on how the administration handled and allegedly undercounted the deaths of nursing home residents from COVID. That led to the governor attacking Assemblyman Ron Kim. That, I think it's, it's fair to say, helped to prompt uh, a former Cuomo aide named Lindsay Boylan to post up a personal essay on her allegations of sexual harassment when she worked for the governor, that in turn prompted another former Cuomo aide, Charlotte Bennett, to talk to the New York Times about her own allegations that the governor was allegedly wildly inappropriate in conversations with her asking very personal questions such as, would you ever consider having uh, an affair with an older man? And uh, of course, just two days after that, the New York Times came out with another story um, in which a woman who was a wedding guest of a highly placed Cuomo aide who has now moved away from the governor's inner circle says that she was touched inappropriately and the governor you know, tried to kiss her uh, uninvited. And there was a photo of that where she looks clearly discomfited. The governor has apologized, but it's it, it remains unclear and kind of vague what he was apologizing for and who he was apologizing to. Clearly, to Miss Bennett and to Anna Rook, who was the woman at the uh, at the wedding, the governor has been far less clear as to whether or not he is apologizing to Lindsey Boylan. There have been calls for his resignation. 
from Republicans, of course, but also from progressive Democrats and in the form of Congresswoman Kathleen Rice, uh, you know, uh, uh, Kathleen Rice is uh, a woman who used to be a strong ally of, of the governor's. She was a co-chair of his Moreland Commission to Investigate Public Corruption, which he scuttled midway through its existence. And I mean, I could go on and on, but the bottom line is that the governor is in deep, deep trouble and is uh, trying to find a way out of this box. And it's fair to say, you know, we're talking Thursday midday. If more women come forward with allegations that are as bad or worse than what have been um, that would have been uh, then have been alleged so far, the governor is um, in even more serious trouble, potentially politically fatal trouble. Now, again, we'll have more on this coming up later in this episode. We'll talk to Chris Churchill, our columnist, and Brendan Lyons will talk to a representative of the Sexual Harassment Working Group. Uh, so lots to dissect there further in the podcast. Coming back, though, to top headlines, we had a number of stories come out this week uh, involving local universities. Um, let's start with RPI. What's going on over there? Yeah, RPI. And it's a reminder that um, we might feel like we're done with COVID, but COVID is not done with us. Uh, recently announced um, 30 cases among students, faculty and staff. And that has prompted them to, um, to end in-person learning, which is um, a big deal. RPI, of course, just a couple of months ago, we were writing about how they were a success story um, in their efforts to clamp down on the virus to stave it off. But this, it just shows that even with the best, most effective protocols and, and testing regimens, that uh, COVID can flare up again when you least expect it. Indeed. And we have a previous episode of this podcast where our education reporter, Rachel Silberstein, talked with RPI President Shirley Jackson about their COVID plans. So we can kind of hear how that played out if you listen to both of these episodes. Also at UAlbany, there are some cuts and some changes. What's, What's happening over there? Yeah, I mean, a very distressing um, story also by Rachel Silverstein about a deficit of, I believe the number is more than $40 million that Albany is going to have to address. There are cuts afoot, according to the CFO, cuts of uh, up to 15%. That's deeply painful. And it's a reminder that with the, uh, with the pandemic, has, of course, come a drop in revenue coming into uh, the state system, as well as, of course, private schools. And also the fact that the lockdown and the sort of end of easy travel internationally has meant the, the end or at least the throttling back significantly of international students at these schools. International students, because they pay out-of-state tuition as well as room and board, are a big profit centers for for all higher education institutions, and the loss of them has blown a big hole in UAlbany and the bottom line of lots of other schools. Uh, also at UAlbany, big development, uh, the longtime head coach of the Division I basketball team is parting ways with the school. What's happening there? Will Brown, who has, who has been there for two decades, I mean, a real institution at UAlbany, announced uh, that he will be leaving in what has been described by Will Brown in the school as a mutual decision to part ways. 
His record in recent years has not been as great as previously, but of course he was a beloved figure. There were many people who praised him for uh, his charitable works as well as for his uh, for his coaching style. So headed out the door, the world of college athletics is a turbulent one, without a doubt. One of our most popular thoroughfares here, uh, 787, might get some upgrades or a facelift or change. Uh, can you tell us what's what's happening there and what Chris Churchill wrote about this week? Well, there's been a lot of talk in recent months and recent years that wouldn't it be nice if Albany, a riverfront city, actually was able to have easy access to its waterfront. Instead, we have 787, a concrete ribbon sort of on the classic Robert Moses uh flow uh, school of urban design that is quite literally just like a moat that um, prevents Albany from from really taking advantage of what used to be one of kind of the great urban waterfronts. Um, very different, for example, from Montreal, which is a city that, that really is able to go right up against um, its river. The idea is that perhaps 787 could be augmented, um, scaled back into a little bit more of a boulevard style approach to the city. That would be a massive infrastructure undertaking. But um, Assemblywoman Pat Fahey, who has called for a study of the options that might be available, is now backing this. And with the arrival of the Biden administration, some, including including our own columnist, Chris Churchill, are suggesting that now is the time to kind of to think big and think about ways in which the city could be could be remade, perhaps in a way that does not um, favor or advantage um, being able to get from I-90 to the state office complex in five minutes. Well, it's uh, let's hope it doesn't turn into the big dig. Whatever ends up happening. I'll tell you, if you drive through Boston now, <laughs> the end result is pretty good. But goodness knows it was it was painful for years and years and years and years and years and extraordinarily expensive as well. So, yeah, you got to take the good with the bad. Indeed. As we discussed earlier in this episode, the previously popular New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has seen his stock drop steeply after a recent cascade of issues that are threatening his popularity. And as columnist Chris Churchill recently speculated, his political future as well. I pulled Chris aside to learn a little bit more. I never knew at the time I was making anyone feel uncomfortable. And I certainly never, ever meant to offend anyone or hurt anyone or cause anyone any pain. We tried to record this earlier in the week, you know, your take on what's happening with Governor Andrew Cuomo and the administration and um, the sexual harassment allegations and the nursing home scandal. We tried to talk about all of this. However, just... Yesterday, and we're talking on a Thursday, Governor Andrew Cuomo came out and addressed the sexual harassment allegations and apologized. So that's a long-winded way of introducing the fact that you had written a column this week suggesting that this might be the beginning of the end of his political career. Given the apology and what's happened since, has that changed at all? Has your your estimation of uh, his political aspirations for the future changed? How has the apology affected things? 
It's a good question. I mean, in some ways, maybe he bought himself a little bit more time, I think, where, you know, maybe people will be a little bit more willing to be patient. Maybe the calls for resignation will tamp down a little bit. It's extraordinary whenever Andrew Cuomo apologizes because it's just not something he he does very often. (laughs) Actually, it may have been the first time. I, I don't know. I'd have to go back and check. But, you know, it's just not it's not his style. It's not in his his playbook. It seemed heartfelt at times. You know, he got a little choked up. I think he is probably truly embarrassed about all this. But I don't, I mean, there's still so many unanswered questions at the end of that press conference yesterday, partly because he didn't take questions from people who would ask, you know, tougher questions or people who had actually been writing about this kind of, you know, the New York Times, the the Times Union. You know, he, he took questions from broadcast reporters, I think, almost exclusively. But there are so many unanswered questions that I think will still determine how this plays out for him. When we talked earlier this week about your column that you had written and your reasons for thinking that the governor might not do so well if he runs again for a fourth term, you know, let's go through some of those, you know, points that you made. I mean, one of the things I said is that it's, it seemed extremely unlikely that he would resign. That isn't who he is. And he said yesterday pretty explicitly that he would not resign. Um, but you still wonder, or I still wonder how he runs for a fourth term successfully with carrying this kind of baggage. A lot of this will depend on what Tish James says in the report that she's, the investigation she's doing. But I don't know how a Democrat runs in this state carrying all the baggage that he's carrying and succeeds. I mean, he's, you know, the important point is that two months ago, this would have been like mind blowing for us. I think I think everyone assumed that he would cakewalk to his fourth term. He was incredibly popular after you know the coronavirus, his handling of the coronavirus, and everything has just kind of crumbled since then. And it's been this cascading effect of the nursing home data cover up, the bullying accusations, the sexual harassment allegations. It's just been this drumbeat of bad news. If that drumbeat continues, especially if that drumbeat continues, I don't know how he, I don't know why he would run. I mean, what he just seemed, he would seem very vulnerable to me, especially if a, if a female candidate stepped forward, which I think would really expose, female Democrat especially, would really expose his, his vulnerabilities. But, you know, we're waiting for the Tish James report. I think there are a lot of questions that hopefully it will answer. He, like he said yesterday that he now knows that the things he did were inappropriate or, or potentially offensive. Well, Charlotte Bennett, you know, filed a complaint or talked to his chief of staff and, and other people in the administration about his behavior. Did, was he not aware then that what he did had offended her, you know, and, and how was that handled? Because we take the sexual harassment training here at the Times Union. I took it last week and it says, you know, it's pretty explicit about like, the person who files a complaint cannot just be transferred away to another department, which is exactly exactly what happened to Charlotte Bennett. So, you know, there there are a lot of there are a lot of questions still to be answered. So, can you put on your you know future prediction hat? You know, what do you see happening in the next few months? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I'll say is that's a really dangerous hat to put on. You know, because it's just so unpredictable. Like I said, if you had told us two months ago that he'd be in the position he is in now with, you know, dueling investigations, one 
potentially criminal investigation um, surrounding his handling of nursing homes and the nursing home data, and then this, you know, a sexual harassment investigation. He was riding so high, just, you know, I mean, last year, he was like the most popular politician in the country, and it's all come crashing down. So, you know, predictions are really hard. We just don't know what else is out there. You know, there were, there were times in that press conference yesterday where he seemed to be speaking in plurals, you know, like women, they, which is interesting because he had pretty much flatly denied the allegations made by Lindsey uh, Boylan. So it almost felt like he was preparing us for maybe other allegations coming coming forward, you know? And, and then that's the thing. If there are more, if there are more and more women step forward, I think there's just no way he, he can go. He might even be forced to resign. I mean, who knows? It, it could come to a, a point where politicians like Chuck Schumer or Kirsten Gillibrand are doing basically what they did to Al Franken, which is say, you know, it's time for you to go. You have to go just for the good of the party, for the good of the state, et cetera. But if nobody else comes forward and these and the Tish James report is not that damning, I mean, there is a potential for him to, to go on and be okay. It's, it's just so hard to know. As we await the findings of the Attorney General's investigation into potential sexual misconduct by the governor, he's facing calls for resignation from both sides of the aisle. Among those calling for him to step down is the Sexual Harassment Working Group, a collective of former legislative employees who experienced or witnessed sexual harassment by state lawmakers. Capitol Bureau Managing Editor Brendan Lyons sat down with co-founder Erica Vladimir on our sister podcast, Capital Confidential. And here's a bit of that conversation. I am here today with Erica Vladimir, a former policy analyst and counsel for the Independent Democratic Conference. Erica is also um, an alleged survivor of sexual abuse herself and has endured, uh, Erica, what I would say is quite a long ordeal with a similar allegation you had made against uh, Jeff Klein many years ago. And in that case, it has the, the process that you've endured. Just talk a little bit about that too, because that is dragged out. And then recently you learned, in fact, the Joint Commission on Public Ethics is pursuing an investigation, but it taken so long to do that, that Mr. Klein is now using that in a court challenge to say that they no longer have jurisdiction. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, that's, that's correct, Brendan. Uh, he is basically saying that the commission, he, he personally asked to investigate uh, my claims against him, um, is no longer authorized or does not have jurisdiction, which uh, is, is quite ironic. Um, but this is what we see from classic uh, power abusers, sexual harassers, is that once they are finally in a place where they're going to be held accountable, uh, they look for any type of loophole to get out of, of that accountability. Um, and Klein is using the court system uh, to, to try and do that for himself. Whereas what we're seeing with Governor Cuomo is, is he is using gaslighting tactics, making this more about how the victims, how uh, Charlotte, how Anna, um, and although he hasn't mentioned Lindsay, uh, you know, how Lindsay uh, 
uh, feels. This is about their emotions. This is how they interpreted his actions. Um, he's once again, victim blaming. Um, and again, this is all part of the same playbook we see from serial harassers. And the governor has come forward and, and finally answered questions on this matter. I was taken aback by his defense that seemed to be built around, I'm an old guy. This is the way we've always done things. My father did things this way. We, we were talking about 2019, 2020, this behavior by his own measures, his own, the, the, the laws that he has helped enact doesn't seem to excuse that behavior at all. In fact, it was, it was rather shocking to hear him say that, that he was sorry if he offended anyone. Did you buy his explanation in terms of, it's just an old guy being misunderstood you know, we always put our hands on people and kiss people. This is 2021. What do you, what are your thoughts on that explanation? Yeah, I, I did not believe his, uh, his, his tactic of trying to garner as much empathy as, as possible, uh, a even a little bit. Uh, he was clearly lying through his teeth and, and you can see that much in the way that he even flip-flopped with what he was saying. I apologize or if, if I hurt anyone, but I didn't do anything wrong. Um, his reliance on the fact that he didn't, you know, physically touch Charlotte without even acknowledging the fact that he, you know, uh, forced a kiss on, on Anna as well as Lindsay. Um, he is clearly trying to evade his own, or at least his publicly stated moral standards and the, the very standards that were codified in his not so great 2018 sexual harassment laws. So he's not even living up to his own standards and they are a pretty low bar. I think it's quite insulting that he would try and rely on his father and, and use that as an excuse for the way he is acting when he knows it is wrong. He's trying to garner sympathy from the public and use that to his credibility when what he's really doing is gaslighting and victim blaming in every possible way using the same language. Everything he said in his press conference is the same thing that he said in that ridiculous statement that was put out over the weekend to try and excuse his behavior. I'm gonna ask you to speculate just for a moment, but <laughs> do you think he survives this? He is he is a, a very, you know, ruthless politician at times. That's his, that's his legacy. You know, he is often has, has that Teflon to him, but do you think he gets through this? He will not get through this because we will not let him. Um, he, he might be ruthless. That might be his style. And, and people like to kind of use that as, as a way to excuse a behavior for him, much in the way that he excused his behavior at the wedding and the way that he, you know, physically touched Anna without her consent by saying, I'm Italian, this is just what we do, this is just how our personality is, um, that does not make it okay. And that does not excuse his behavior. And we will not let this behavior be excused any longer. And, you know, we are, for whatever reason, at a moment of reckoning here in New York State, where a lot more people are paying attention and recognize that this is not just a style and a personality style or trait, um, that this is wrong, that this is power abuse and it needs to change. And that means Governor Cuomo needs to go. 
You can hear more of this conversation on our sister podcast, Capital Confidential, at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. After the break, Christy Gustafson-Barletti catches up with WNYT sports anchor Chris Honorado on a clip from her new web series, 20 Things Plus. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of The Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Raniere's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Back in 2017, Features writer and blogger Christy Gustafson Barletti started a series of interviews with local celebrities called 20 Things You Don't Know About Me. Nearly four years and 200 pieces later, it's become one of TimesUnion.com's most popular features. Now, Christy catches up with some of the folks she's interviewed on a weekly web series called 20 Things Plus. On the latest episode, she talks to WNYT sports anchor and host of the sports web show Honorado and Bagnardi, Chris Honorado, about some of his favorite celebrity encounters. And your first one that you'll talk about, I love because it sounds like you can say to President Obama, I knew you when. Yeah, and he'll say, um, who are you? Right. Um, yeah, it's. <laughs> It's crazy. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, I'll be honest, I was ignorant to who Senator Barack Obama was in 2004 when he was a junior senator um, in Illinois. And he was the keynote speaker at John Kerry's Democratic National Convention. I was a lowly intern for NBC News. Uh, and I had no idea that in those two weeks, I would come across the future president of the United States and the first black president of the United States. But I can tell you in Boston, I was there for a week before the convention started and there, and there for two weeks during and after. Um, and the buzz was all about Barack Obama. And to me, it was like, who, who is this? Should I know who this person is? Um, he was, of course, phenomenal. But the kind of behind the scenes story I have is that I got to see Barack Obama practice his keynote address for that Democratic National Convention. It was in some side room uh, in, in Boston. We were at the garden, and it wasn't the TD Garden yet, I don't believe. Um, and it was me, uh, an, an NBC staffer of real responsibility, and then like <laughs> just three people in his party. And it was in a little side conference room kind of thing. Uh, it was really, really cool. Now that I can look back on that and, and say I was there to see it. Um, at the time, of course, I didn't appreciate it as so many other things in life. When you get great opportunities, you don't really fully appreciate them uh, during the moment. But that entire experience of being at a convention and, and seeing kind of the inner workings of it, I had a great 
you know, opportunity to meet some people. And, uh, you know, like I had to escort the Black Eyed Peas to the stage for their musical performance. Uh, Amarosa, do you remember her from? Yes, uh, that's from The Apprentice. The Apprentice, yeah. She was a big deal then. I had to, I had to go book her for a spot on MSNBC. I, I drove Chris Jansing around on a golf cart for part of the week. So there were some cool things I got to do that during the moment, you know, you're young and dumb and, uh, and probably didn't appreciate it fully. I love that Chris Jansen, formerly Chris Kapastashi, obviously with WMIT, falls into the same category as the Black Eyed Peas and Fergie and Amorosa. That's big doings. You had some good Yeah, questions. John Mellencamp was there. It was cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to continue with the name dropping because when you drove cross country, you did the LA program while at Ithaca for a semester. And while driving cross country, you didn't meet just one notable, but two, and you even hung out with them. Tell us about that. Boy, where do I start? Um, you got to go right to Betty, right? Okay. Okay. So I had dinner one night with Betty White and this wasn't like some chance encounter and I got lucky. I mean, I'm fortunate that my parents came out to visit while I was doing my semester there from New Jersey and my uncle lives in LA and has lived in LA my entire life. He's lived, he, we always jokingly say when the Dodgers moved from Brooklyn, he went from the East coast to the West coast, which is pretty close to accurate. Um, so he's been out there forever and he works in the entertainment business uh, and he has known Betty White for a very, very long time. And so when my parents were coming out to visit, my uncle Al said, let me see if Betty's available for dinner. We'll go to the Hotel Roosevelt and we'll have, it was like a music dinner party kind of thing, um, which we got to do. Now, Betty then I think was 81 uh, and she just turned, was it 99? I think. Yeah, she's in her late 90s. She just had her birthday a couple of weeks ago. I'll tell you what, at 81, she couldn't have been any sharper than she was. Um, it was, we had a great time. She couldn't have been more gracious. And and obviously we were all, it was just the five of us, right? But but still, she was so locked into each part of the conversation. That was an absolute thrill. Uh, the picture I have from that is something that I that I keep in a frame still. And it's kind of... Is that weird? Probably like, you know, you come into one of the rooms in the houses and you're like, okay, your parents, you and Betty White. But did you base what you ordered on what Betty White was eating? Or was it just like, look, I want the steak, even though Betty's getting salmon. <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I don't, I have no clue. Well, Christy, remember from my 20 things you don't know about me, I'm not a foodie. So I have no, no idea what she ordered, what I ordered. Um, Michael Feinstein was singing that night at the Hotel Roosevelt. I remember that. Um, more than that, though, no, probably uh, too much time spent at the Saddle Ranch during my semester there. <laughs> All right, and now tell us about Mr. Belding. So from this is crazy. There were a few spots we would go um, during the week where you could like be out in LA and not deal with the crowds, right? So and we, we were holed up in Burbank. That's where our apartments were. So there was this place called, it's no longer there anymore. It's called Dimples. Um, and it was right down the road from the Oakwood Apartments, which is where we stayed. Um, which, by the way, we went to a party at the Oakwood Apartments where Method Man and Red Man were. That's a different thing. But, but that was, a, this, is what, right, this is what's weird about California. But we go to Dimples. It's a karaoke bar, total cheese show. and. Dennis Haskins, Mr. Belding, would be there almost every single time we were there. Um, 
And so I, I said to my uncle one night, like halfway through the semester, I said, oh, by the way, Uncle Al, you'll never believe this. This is so funny. Like we go to this karaoke bar called Dimples in Burbank. It's a total hole in the wall. But Dennis Haskins is always there. You know, the guy who played Mr. Belding. And my uncle says to me, that's so funny. I haven't seen him in so long. If you ever get a chance to approach him, tell him who you are. I gave him his first job in television. I was like, well, now here's my shot to sing karaoke with Mr. Belding. So I went up to him one night and I said, Dennis, you don't know me. My name is Chris Honorado. And he stopped me. And he said, what's the last name? I said, Honorado. Do you know Al Honorado? I said, yeah, I know Al Honorado. He's my uncle. He is the great blah, blah, blah. Went on this tangent about my uncle. And before you know it, me and my buddies are up on stage singing karaoke with Dennis Haskins. It's, I mean, that's as bizarre as it gets, I know. Please tell me you remember the song. You don't remember The Fool with Betty, but you need to remember what you sang with Mr. Belding. Here's what I do remember. I want it to be Sweet Caroline. <laughs> yeah, well, his go-to was The Divinals. I don't even and know that. <laughs> I Touch Myself was his go-to <laughs> karaoke song. <laughs> okay, you're at Dimples and you're singing I Touch Myself. I think that's all we need to know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You can hear the rest of this episode of 20 Things Plus on Times Union's YouTube channel at youtube.com slash albanytu. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Albany Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom.